What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting. We had some interesting cards for the last weekend. Bellator on Friday, then the UFC on Saturday. And they weren't the best. But it is to be expected because the fights so far for like the past few months have been insane. Back-to-back crazy fights. There was bound to be something that didn't live up to that trend. And it's only two. The Bellator car was as Bellator as you can get. Where the title fight in the co-main event ended due to a headbutt. And then you had a close inactive, kind of boring, to some controversial main event between the two best fighters in Bellator, AJ McKee and Patricio Pitbull. So regarding the co-main event, Corey Anderson was winning the majority of the fight against Nemkov, who was the champion. And it seemed like Corey was going to realize his dream of becoming a major organization champion. And then when he's on top of Nemkov winning the fight, a headbutt happened. And some people blame Nemkov, some people blame Anderson. Anderson was throwing a weird left hand and went head first into Nemkov, but Nemkov also moved his head to the side. It seemed accidental and ultimately ended in a no contest in the third round of a five-round fight. And now Corey Anderson just came out and said that if he were to have won, he would have won a million dollars, as well as becoming the light heavyweight champion of Bellator. So for sure, they're going to have to run this back. And it looks like Corey Anderson should be the favorite going into that one because I believe Nemkov was the favorite in the first fight. Yes, Nemkov was like a minus 180, which is actually pretty big of a favorite. So that's going to turn on its head. Corey Anderson should probably be a big favorite going against Nemkov. And this is a blessing for Nemkov because he can actually prepare for what Corey's going to do next time. Seemed like he was a step behind for most of that fight. So it's going to give him another chance. Nothing really to talk about the main event. We kind of already understand now where those two guys are at. McKee and Patricio Pipple are good fighters probably the best at Bellator especially Pitbull but they have ways to go to be the greatest featherweight on the planet the thing I want to talk about more is Big John scoring and it carries into the week prior when he talked about the Aljamain Sterling and Peter Jan fight saying that there's no way and this is by quote there's no way Aljamain Sterling won the fight against Peter Jan and now in the Patricio Pitbull fight he said that Pitbull lost the third round which was Pitbull's most convincing round that he won And even the judges gave it to him besides Derek Cleary, who usually doesn't see fights too clearly. Now, I like Big John, and it's nothing against him. It's against the argument that people really bring up whenever Big John talks about scoring. They eat up his words as gospel, where oftentimes, just like everybody else, he gets scoring wrong. Back when Alexander Volkanovsky uh, beat Max Holloway the second time, now with him saying that Patricio Pippo lost the third round, and then him saying that there's no way Aljamain beat Piotr Jan, like, I agree with none of this. And it brings it up again. You cannot argue by authority. There's an appeal to authority fallacy whenever someone brings up, oh, but Big John said it, he won. That doesn't mean anything. He has to actually substantiate how he won. It's not just he says it and now you should believe it. That's how people get tricked with a lot of things. Not saying that Big John would like to trick you, but people eat this stuff up from, you know, when celebrities say something, when politicians say things, people just like to eat it up because they're in a seat of expertise. Like, for an example, look at scientists. Scientists never have a blank statement saying, oh, this is true about the world, about physics or chemistry or something. Oh, and trust me because I'm a scientist. They never do that. They actually have an experiment that people can observe. They get the evidence, then they put out, oh, this is real. That is actually, in fact, what I do with some of the analysis. When I'm breaking down why a certain fighter won, why a specific strike is actually meaningful, what makes it meaningful and stuff like that, that's actually what we're doing. But in Big John's case, he's saying a certain fighter won without really going into detail as to why they won. He might say something like, oh, he landed harder shots, but which harder shots? What are the specific strikes that you're giving this fighter in the round that you have them winning it? What did they specifically do? Because we can go back in the first round and Eljamie Sterling probably landed the biggest strike, that elbow. And yes, Big John did help write the rules. And yes, he's been right about some of the scoring in fights. 
but he's also been wrong many times as well. What you have to look at is a substantial evidence as to why a certain guy won a specific fight, not just, I said he won, therefore he won, and that's how people are going by it, and it makes a lot of people look foolish. And I see with Big John saying that, you know, Pitbull lose in the third round and that El Jermaine didn't win against Putrian, people are starting to pick it up now and saying, okay, maybe I shouldn't take someone's word without actually substantiating their argument. And that's what it's all about. Don't take my word blindly. Don't take a fighter's word blindly or Big John's word blindly about scoring a fight or something like that. I've proved myself wrong on many breakdowns where I thought I'll fighter won before I looked at it more analytically. Then I went back and analyzed it. And I'm like, oh, wait, the other guy did win. I was wrong. That happened with the Putrion and Aljamain Sterling fight. I thought Putrion won the fight clearly. Then I went back and analyzed. I'm like, oh, wait. No, Sterling actually did win the fight. I'm very honest when I'm right and when I'm wrong. And that's where people have to get the importance out of this. No one knows everything about the sport. Therefore, no one should be taking someone's words blindly. And that appeal to authority fallacy is the most common fallacy you'll probably ever hear. I mean, you probably know in all walks of life, everybody's always repeating what a celebrity said or what a politician said or what someone who seems like an expert says without ever trying to find any contrary information or even listening to see if they actually bring examples up and evidence up to back up their claims. Usually people just say things without backing up their claim, especially the higher they are in a celebrity status, people will 100% follow it without even a second thought. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that was always a big argument against anything I would say. They would say, oh, but Big John said this guy won. Yeah, but then I would ask, what did Big John say, though, besides that that guy won? And there'll always be crickets. If, for example, Big John or someone else who helped write the scoring actually brought forward a convincing argument, this is why the guy won, and brought up multiple different examples and reasons as to why the guy won, now we got something. But just saying it is not enough. And then when we move to Bilal Muhammad's performance against Vicente Luque, all credit to Bilal Muhammad putting on a fantastic performance against someone who a lot of people thought would be one of the biggest problems for the top guys of the welterweight division in Vicente Luque. Bilal kept up a stick, move, and shoot game plan, constantly moving away from Luque's left hook, popping him in the face with straight punches, which when you scale it back to the Wonderboy Thompson fight against Vicente Luque, Wonderboy was able to keep popping Luque in the face with his straight punches. Blah Muhammad took that, kept it up for the whole fight, and the takedowns came so easy, ultimately winning the fight using all of his skills as a mixed martial artist, and that's the beauty of Blah Muhammad. He's not extraordinary in any part of his game, but he has all the skills. Some will call him a jack-of-all-trades, but the thing is, he has a pretty high fight IQ. He knows when to use the different kind of techniques. He knows when to shoot. His timing for his takedowns are great. He has nice precision with his punches. He has good footwork, knows where to move on the cage. The guy is extremely aware of what to do in front of his opponent, no matter where the fight is, on the feet, from kicking range, from punching range, on the ground in the clinch. He always knows what to do, and he has skills to cover every area of the game. But things become very tricky for Blah Muhammad because who does he fight next? The look in the lineup, Hamza Shemaev and Colby Covington. Leon Edwards is going to be fighting Kamaru Usman. So the top four guys are all booked. And he just beat the next ranked guy, Vicente Luque. Perhaps they could do Bilal Muhammad versus Gilbert Burns. Or Bilal can wait out and fight the loser of some of those higher ranked fights. He can either fight Colby, Leon, or Hamzat, given that if Usman loses, he's going to get an immediate rematch. One of those three guys he could potentially wait out for to see who loses. But for sure, Bilal is going to need at least one more win in order to get that title shot. And man, it's awesome to see Bilal get this far in his career. From a guy who was like winning some good fights but losing the meaningful fights, to now someone who hasn't lost in three years, eight fight undefeated streak, and just got his revenge over Vicente Luque, who was the only guy ever to finish him in a fight before. 
Luke back in 2016, TKO Blah Muhammad. Got revenge against that guy for the first time going five rounds in a fight. And Blah looked pretty good out there. This is a fighter who has perseverance to him continuously tries to get better and now is seeing himself toward the top of the division whereas before no one really looked at Blah Muhammad that way now you have to look at him that way and with that let's go right to the questions we're gonna start here with the members Naresh Mulkante thank you for your efforts and all you do my wife and I are in our 30s and have started learning the fundamentals of boxing after watching YouTube videos it's been six to seven months now you know just the one two one one two one two three combinations to the bag and shadow boxing for 15 minutes daily we spar light but the quality of sparring is as poor as you can expect from absolute beginners what specific training videos and or material would you recommend for beginners who start out and want to continue to train at home for fun what are some of the things we should not be doing at the stage? For an example, hard sparring. Yeah, don't hard spar, especially if it's just you and your wife. Um, and at home, it's never a good idea to go to go hard at all like that. Number one, I would say is if you can join a gym, you should probably join a gym. You can only do so much at home. The progression to getting better is going to be so much slower if you're just at home, right? There's some things that you just don't have there. Some of the equipment, some of the bodies, you need, you need different kind of bodies, light people, heavy people to really feel out different kind of things. And also, it really depends what you're trying to do. Are you just doing it for fun? It seems like that's what you said here. Or are you doing it to try to get better? How focused are you on this? That's really what it comes down to. Because if you're just doing it for fun and you don't want to spend the money to go to a gym, I mean, I guess you could just do most of this at home. Hit the bag continuously every single day. Really get into it. Learn combinations. Perfect the jab when it comes to the step, when it comes to the extension of the arm. The shoulder has to go all the way through. Always keep the other hand up to your head. And the retraction has to be perfect just like the extension. After you learn the jab, then you go to the one, two. Now the right hand has to be perfect in form. Once you get that down, now go for the one, two, three. Or you can go to the one, one, two. When you can get the double jab down, now go to a triple jab, start learning some uppercuts and stuff like that. And footwork should be known first before you go to combinations. That's something actually a lot of people forget. Learn footwork first. If you can get the footwork down, it makes punching a lot easier. From what I know, from my experience helping people out or just seeing it in the gym, people get the footwork wrong for punches more than the actual like upper body form. So that is my number one thing. Learn the footwork first. Punching comes afterward. Shadow box for 15 minutes. That could do you good. Um, Probably want to shadow box for a little bit more, but it depends how into it you are again. You're going to want a heavy bag for sure. If you two want to hit pads, you could probably learn to do that with each other. That's actually a good exercise for you and your wife. And that goes for anybody else watching. If you have a partner, you want to try stuff at home. If you and your partner, whoever it is, can get down hitting pads together, that's excellent. Because you can actually get pretty good at that without even going to a gym. But does it translate to an actual fight or competition? Not so much, as you know. Ronda Rousey looked pretty good on the pads, but she did not fight that way. So you can have some awesome pad work just doing it at home with a partner daily. And if you want... Put together a speed bag and a sway bag. Then you pretty much have everything you need. And then with a Justin Mack. Shafka just got booked against Neil Magny. I personally think that Shafka has some of the best skills in the game. I've been telling you guys. But I understand Magny has a difficult style. Do you think that Shafka has a good chance of winning a decision if he can't get him out early like most guys that have fought Magny? Love the podcast. Thank you so much, man, for the question. Thank you for also joining as a member. I've been telling you guys, man. People are starting to get on this Shafka train. And especially with Hamzat's quote-unquote unimpressive performance against Gilbert Burns, it looks like more people are transitioning to the Shavkat train. So there's two trains going on right now in the welterweight division. There's the Hamzat train and the Shavkat train. If you're not on the Hamzat train, you're probably on the Shavkat train. And Shavkat is getting a lot more busy. 
I like this Neil Magny fight. It's actually a guy that a lot of people wanted to see fight Hamza. And that's the thing about Neil Magny. He's experienced. It's hard to finish this guy. Even powerful fighters back in the day like Hector Lombard had him hurt in the first round, but then couldn't get him out. The guy could really take some punishment, as you saw with uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio putting it on him for like four rounds. But the thing about Shavkat Rachmanov is he's going to have the power advantage. He's going to have some of the speed advantage. He's going to have the overall grappling advantage. He's a better striker. He's a better wrestler. Like when it comes to the overall skill set of MMA, Shavka has Neil Magny beat everywhere. And the fact that it's a three-round fight, it's also going to favor Shavka, who we don't really know where his cardio is at. We know Neil Magny can absolutely go five rounds at a fast pace, but it's three rounds where Shavka can expend the gas tank. And Neil Magny necessarily doesn't have that kind of power to hurt Shavka because the thing I do find worrisome about Shavka's game is he doesn't move his head too much. And I can just see, and even though we don't see it much yet, I could just see it in his defensive form. He's probably not that hard to hit. He has some good defense for sure. But once you get to the more advanced striking in the welterweight division, I think some of those guys are going to be able to hit him. But I just don't know if that's Neil Magny. I do expect Shafkat to win this fight for sure. A decision or a finish. I can see him finishing Neil Magny. It would be more so with a submission though. And then with the Kakashi of New Jersey. Since it's likely to happen, how do you see Colby Covington versus Hamza Shemaev going? I knew this question was going to come. Do you think Hamza will go for more grappling than he did against Burns? I love the content. Thank you so much, man. I was talking with some of my friends and some of my uh, relatives about this fight. Because this is a massive one, man. They don't ask me about too many fights, but they are excited about Colby versus Hamza. Both guys that the casual fans know, it can even perhaps headline a pay-per-view. Won't be the biggest pay-per-view in the world, but it would at least sell like 300000 which would be a success. It could potentially even sell more, given the fact that Hamza is a big star in the game. And with that, it would have to be five rounds. There's no way Colby versus Hamza is not five rounds. Because the UFC is going to want to see if Hamza can go five rounds. Because we saw him go three in a fast pace against Gilbert Burns, and he kind of gassed out toward the end of it. And that's the thing that worries me about Hamza the most. Colby isn't powerful. He's not as dangerous as Gilbert Burns was. He's not as fast. He's not as strong. He's overall not as dangerous. But he can keep that pace going for five rounds. Easy, man. And if Hamza's getting tired in a three-round fight at that kind of pace, there's no way he's lasting five with Colby. But the important thing about it is, how does the first few rounds go? Because Hamza's more powerful. He's bigger than Colby. He might be able to stuff all the takedowns. He might be able to take Colby to the ground and try to choke him out and stuff. Colby's a good scrambler, but he may give up his neck at some moments or give up his back, as we haven't seen Colby go up against aggressive, high-level submission artists that can also take him to the ground. Most of the guys he goes up against are either strikers or wrestlers that don't really implement Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Judo or Sambo skills, and Colby can get sometimes a bit reckless. We do know Hamza has fast hands and one-shot knockout power. He has a good precise right straight and uppercut but Hamza's uppercuts could fail by the way he throws them he generally doesn't step inside for that angle against Colby Covington's front stepping overhand without this step he'll be missing his uppercut and getting caught by Colby's overhand historically you also do see that overhands beat uppercuts because of this manner a lot of MMA fighters don't have the necessary footwork to fight against the overhand it's very different compared to the boxers who know what to do here and just in case, Colby does have a really good chin, and he's a hard guy to finish. Even someone like Kamar Usman has a tough time finishing this guy. Jorge Masdal dropped him for a split moment, but couldn't make anything work afterward. Hamza potentially has an ability to drop Colby Covington and try to chase a submission, which some other guys weren't able to do. But the main variable about it is, Colby is not as fragile, I guess, as uh, Gilbert Burns was. He's not going to go down as easy as Burns did. Right, those jabs are probably not going to drop Colby Covington. Hamza's going to have to plant one hard on Colby. 
And for it to keep working that way as Colby is continuing trying to pressure Hamza backwards, things may not work for Hamza. But that is also something I'm thinking about now. Who is going to pressure who? In the beginning, Hamza might be able to pressure Colby back. But the longer the fight goes, you're going to see Colby controlling the fight even more. The later rounds, Colby is for sure going to win those. Do I see him finishing Hamza? Not necessarily. If there's going to be a finish, it's probably going to be Hamza finishing Colby in the early rounds. But that's so hard to picture. So hard to imagine. Even if Colby does get hurt early, I see him rallying his way back. Because the secret to a good chin and a good recovery after taking a punch is having good cardio. You saw this with Tony Ferguson and the Diaz brothers with Colby Covington. It allows them to take a punch a lot better because they're always able to brace up for a shot because most knockouts happen when a fighter is tired. They're not able to brace up for the punch. They're not able to fight against it and all that stuff. They're usually loose, especially with their neck and the head whiplashes from a blow. And the other thing is, these guys are going to be able to recover very quickly. What I could potentially see in this fight is, I can see Hamza dropping Colby Covington, which in itself is going to be difficult to do. I'm just going to give the best case scenario for Hamza to win. He wins like the first two rounds pretty solidly. The third round starts to get a little dicey. I can actually see Colby winning it on the scorecards. And then the fourth and fifth, I also see Colby Covington winning. So potentially, mainly because of the cardio factor and the fact that Colby is getting better as a striker. Hamza shows some glaring weaknesses with his lack of head movement, with his boxing defense. I can see Colby hitting him with a lot of left overhands, a lot of left straights, a lot of jabs from that southpaw stance, with a ton of leg kicks as Hamza does not check those. Yeah, the more I think about the fight, the more I see Colby Covington winning this on the scorecards. I'm going to go 48-47 at the very least. Then go to John Jordan. In the last podcast, you gave your breakdown explanation of what pound for pound actually means. Given that criteria, what would be your pound for pound list? Oh, say top five men's and women's. Also, by that definition, wouldn't Valentina have to be higher than Amanda? If not, why? Thanks, brother. So my definition of pound for pound is what the original definition was. Pretty much who has the best skill set across weight classes. Forget really what accomplishments are because that's what the current pound for pound is. But that was never what it originally was meant to be. I guess there is some correlation with accomplishments to skills. But then again, if you're just going off accomplishments, it's hard to really compare fighters in other divisions. But a reason why pound for pound could be seen as kind of dumb is because the higher weight classes generally are not as skilled. They rely more on their power and physicality. Whereas the lighter weight classes have to be more technical in order to be successful, right? Heavyweights can just be powerful and they can go pretty far. Look at Derek Lewis for an example. You won't see a guy like Derek Lewis be top three in the featherweight division. That would never happen. But in the heavyweight division, you can do that. That's why all those guys are so old. Not too long ago, it seemed like the average age of the top 15 in the heavyweight division was like 35. Where in the bantamweight division, that would never be a thing. So here's my pound for pound list. This is just my opinion. You could disagree, but this is my list here. Since he's considered active in the UFC and he's ranked already, I guess I'm going to have to put John Jones as number one. Number two, I'm going to say Alexander Volkanovsky. Number three, I'm going to say Kamaru Usman. Number four, Charles Oliveira. Number five, Dustin Poirier. Number six, Max Holloway. And that's where things get tough. People might scratch their heads at this. But I'm going to say number seven is Robert Whitaker. And I can even argue he's above Holloway and Dustin Poirier. The reason why I have Whitaker above Adesanya is because I believe his skills and his style and the way he fights... I mean, this guy shuts down wrestling games and not a lot of people can strike with him. He's extremely powerful. He's incredibly fast pound for pound. He's super technical. He has high fight IQ. He has good offensive wrestling as well. The reason why I have Whitaker above Adesanya is because I believe his skills and his style and the way he fights is more successful across weight classes than Adesanya's is. 
actually far more effective. And also, I do believe that he beat Adesanya in their last fight. In the middleweight division, there's not a lot of good wrestlers. That could be a big reason as to why Adesanya is so successful in that weight class. Whenever someone happens to take him to the ground, those are the fights he starts to struggle in. And that's why he even lost to Jan Blachowicz where I believe that Whitaker could do very well in the light heavyweight division. And imagine him in all the weight classes. I think the only one he has a really hard time in is probably heavyweight, considering that he does not have a good chin. And sometimes he runs into shots. In the heavyweight division, one shot, no matter how much he's winning the fight, could put him out. So heavyweight may be tough for Robert Whitaker. He would definitely go very far, though, considering the well-roundedness to his game. In the light heavyweight division, he's super successful. Middleweight successful. Welterweight definitely successful. That's actually probably the easiest weight class for him. Lightweight, successful. Featherweight, he runs into some trouble there. It would be very competitive for him. Bantamweight, successful. Flyweight, successful. Robert Whitaker has one of the best skill sets when you talk about pound for pound. That is why I'm going to have to put Robert Whitaker at number seven. Number eight, I'm going to have to say is Eldermay Sterling. Number nine, Pietro Jan. Number 10, Davis Figueredo. Number 11, Brandon Moreno. Number 12, Francis Ngannou. Number 13, Stephen Miocic. Number 14, Israel Adesanya. And then number 15, Glover Teixeira. I already know a lot of people are going to say, why you have Israel Adesanya so low? The big issue about Adesanya is he's the most one-dimensional out of all the champions. And frankly, one of the most one-dimensional across all top three contenders of each division. All I'm going to say is, if we had an Adesanya in the welterweight division, I'm pretty sure he would not do as well there. Even the lightweight division, potentially even the bantamweight division, and the light heavyweight division, Adesanya is not as dominant. Now for middleweight and featherweight divisions that don't really have great wrestlers, that's where Adesanya is definitely going to shine because not many guys can strike with him. He's potentially the best striker in the entire UFC. And he has solid takedown defense against the fence, not so much in open space, and he does expose himself trying to get up from the bottom. And it seems like fighters can potentially control him, right? For an example, the welterweight division is a nightmare weight class for him. When you got the strength of Usman, you got the technical wrestling from Colby Covington that is never going to allow you to get up from any kind of angle. You have the crushing pressure of Hamza Shemaev. You have the slick Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu combined with good wrestling from Gilbert Burns. You have the well-rounded wrestling from Bilal Muhammad. I mean, the welterweight division is incredibly difficult for someone like Adesanya. Keep Adesanya away from welterweights. The light heavyweight division, I mean, Glover Teixeira be an issue, Jan Blachowicz another issue, Mongo Ben Uncle Live if he decides to wrestle. The rest of the division he can actually do very well against. He would do very well in the heavyweight division for sure. That's actually one of the better divisions for himself. You talk about the lightweight division, Oliver is a tough fight for him, Dustin Poirier, tough fight. Islam Akashev definitely wins, but Neil Dariush, that's a tough one, Michael Chandler if he decides to wrestle, RDA is not easy either, lightweight is actually one of the toughest divisions for Adesanya's style, featherweight is one of his better weight classes, Volkanovski, Arnold Allen, Bryce Mitchell, and Mavsar Evloev, potentially even Ilya Tuporia would be an issue for him, but everybody else he can really compete with, if not outright dominate them, him and Max Holloway would be a fantastic fight to look at, Adesanya would potentially be like a, a Zabit size, going up against these guys. And then in the bantamweight division, Sterling's an issue for him. Pietrion's an issue for him. TJ's a hard fight. Marab is a nightmare. Jack Shore is super difficult. Like, you go to all these divisions, and you think about Adesanya's skill set and his style up against these guys. It's just not as effective as a lot of these top 15 pound-for-pound fighters, but he is top 15. Because against the cage, you can defend takedowns pretty well. And his striking is absolutely elite of the elite. He has a good chin. He has good power. He's fast. He's long for his weight class. So in every single division, he will be longer or taller than most of the guys there. 
And then we talk about the females. I'm going to go through this one really quickly. So number one is Valentina Shevchenko, as she should be. She actually is number one right now. Then I would say Amanda Nunes. Number three, Rose Namajunas. Number four, Jean-Wei Lee. Number five, Yuan Yang Jacek. Number six, Jessica Andraj. Number seven, Carla Esparza. Number eight, Jermaine Duranami. Then I guess number nine is Juliana Pena. Number 10, Marina Rodriguez. Number 11, Yang Xiaonan. Number 12, Holly Holm. Number 13, Caitlin Trukagian. Number 14, Mackenzie Dern. And then number 15, Irina Aldana. Then we go to Brandon's question. Hey Weasel, why does Dutch kickboxing usually have more success than MMA than traditional Muay Thai for striking? Thanks for the content. Really appreciate your work. Thank you so much for the question, man. It's the way they move and the way their stance is. They're not as flat-footed and squared in front of the opponent, which is easy for takedowns. That's like the main thing against these traditional Muay Thai fighters. They're way too squared. And you saw that when Demetrius Johnson fought Rod Tank. Rod Tank came out there like a Muay Thai fighter in the first round because it was a Muay Thai fight. And as soon as it went MMA, everything changed the bottom. His stance, the way he was moving, the way he was doing shots. He knew he could not fight that way because it's pretty much known already. If you don't have insane Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu skills, wrestling skills... You are not going to fight like a traditional Muay Thai fighter in MMA. Whereas touch kickboxing, they can keep their stance a little bit more wide. They focus on hands a lot. There's not a tremendous amount of leg kicks and body kicks compared to the Muay Thai fighters. And I would say that's like the general rule about it. That's why you see a lot of these Dutch kickboxers doing much better than traditional Muay Thai strikers. They go to Daniel Sandoval. If there was no time limit, just one 15 or 25 minute round, who do you think would be the champion of each division? Love the vids, can't wait for the live streams. Interesting question. So in the heavyweight division, if it was just a one 25-minute round, who would be the champ? For the heavyweight division, not a lot of fights would go that long. So I would say it would be Francis Ngannou still. He would knock out most of his uh, opponents. And even if he goes up against Surreal Gan again, Surreal Gan didn't show the same kind of fight IQ that Ngannou had. So even though Gan has a major chance of being the champion in that kind of fight, I see him making mistakes and getting controlled on the ground just like last time. In the light heavyweight division, I'm starting to think it might be either Glover Teixeira or Alexander Rakic. Rakic has really good takedown defense. He's very strong. He seems to have good cardio. He doesn't really go at a fast pace, and not a lot of people want to try him. Right? They don't want to test his cardio because he's so explosive. So one of them two, Ankalaev's last performance did not impress me at all. If it's just one 25-minute round, it's not going to really look good for Ankalaev if he fights that way. But then again, he didn't wrestle in that fight when he could have. So I'm actually going to go with Alexander Rakic in this one. The middleweight division, I'm going to go with Robert Whitaker. I believe uh, there's no rounds that Adesanya is going to be able to use for the ref to stand them up. In the welterweight division, it's Kamar Usman. Lightweight division, I would say, is uh, Islam Makashev. Featherweight division, Volkanovski. Now in the bantamweight division, this is where it gets tough because it could be Sterling. It could be Jan. It could be TJ. Those are the three I'm really contemplating right now. I don't think it's Josie Aldo because he does tire out. He's showing much better cardio these days, but I just don't trust it for five rounds. The safe pick is Sterling, but I can see TJ and Petrion again being very difficult fights for him. It's like up in the air between them three. In the flyweight division is Davidson Figueredo. Now for the women's bantamweight division, it really depends on Amanda Nunez's cardio if she's ever recovered after whatever happened to her, because in that fight with Pena, she gassed out way too quickly. Man, that division is so shallow right now. I'm going to go with Jermaine Duranami. The women's flyweight division, it's no-brainer. Valentina Shevchenko. And then the women's strawweight division, this one's tough between Rose and uh, Carla Esparza. I can see Esparza beating Rose. It's a tough matchup, because I can see Carla beating Rose. Both have really good cardio, but I don't think Rose is going to have that great of cardio when she's on her back for the majority of the fight. So I'm going to go with Carla Esparza. 
And then with a Soren, what's next for Peter Jan? How do you see the Bantamweight division playing out and who will be the champ in the next year or so? Have a great weekend, Go. Thank you so much, Soren. So for Peter Jan, it really depends now because who is going to fight Sterling? It would even be crazy if they threw a third fight between them. But then again, with TJ Dillashaw and Jose Aldo out there, it's tough to have Jan fight for the belt again. The guy fought for the interim title. He fought Sterling twice for the Undisputed Championship. So potentially, it might be TJ Dillashaw, given the fact that he just beat Corey Sanhagen. But if they do that, you can't have Jose Aldo fight Peter Jan again, can you? I guess that would be the fight. Or you could do a rematch between Jan and Sanhagen. The thing that would be ideal, just so you can match up everybody perfectly, is have Peter Jan versus TJ Dillashaw. Have Jose Aldo get a title shot. Corey Sanhagen could fight Marab or something. But I don't see Jose Aldo getting a title shot before TJ does. I guess you could do a Pietrian Jose Aldo rematch. That would actually be an interesting one because people have to remember Aldo was giving Jan a pretty hard time in those early rounds. And now that Aldo's looking much better than before, I would actually like to see this one. And the champion in a year, I believe, is going to be TJ Dillashaw. And they're going to dangerously dubious Double Davison. Hey Weasel, love your podcast. Who do you think is the best BJJ player in every division and what criteria do you use to judge grappling? Thanks Weasel, love your content. Thank you so much for the question, man. So, so for the heavyweight division, I would have to say it is Tom Aspinall, even though there's not a lot of good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artists there. Light heavyweight division is by far Glover Tashira. Middleweight division is Andre Mooney's. Welterweight division, it is by far Gilbert Burns. Lightweight division, by far Charles Oliveira. Featherweight division, by far Brian Ortega, Kron Gracie, Ryan Hall, like all these guys, man. Featherweight has the strongest BJJ players out of any division. Bryce Mitchell's also really good. Billy Cortino's really good as well. For the bantamweight division, there is Pedro Munoz, but I would have to say as far as effectiveness, it has to be Aljamain Sterling. Flyweight division, I'd probably have to say is Brennan Moreno. Women's bantamweight is Amanda Nunes. Women's flyweight is Valentina Shevchenko. And women's strawweight is Mackenzie Dern. And in terms of what criteria do I use to judge grappling, it's just unified rules. It's pretty simple. Anything that really contributes to a potential finish is going to be weighed more than anything else. So getting a close submission attempt is going to trump anything else. For an example, the guillotine that Patricio Pipple had over AJ McKee, that is super effective grappling. That's like compared to a knockdown and striking. They're with a Hydra OG. Who has the best chance to be a triple champ? I think GSP, if he can cut to 155, he is only 5'10", so it doesn't seem impossible. I hope you're not talking about right now. GSP is not going to 155 and beating those guys right now. But if we're just talking about guys in their prime, or at one point had the potential to actually go to another weight class and try to become that triple champion... Yeah, GSP, during the time that Habib was the champ, there was an opportunity for him to be the first ever three-division champion. And I have to say the other one is Henry Cejudo. In the moment right now, and probably throughout history, Henry Cejudo comes the closest to being a triple champion. I wonder if Valentina Shevchenko can do it, though. I wonder if she can cut down to 115. Because she does walk around at 135, and, I mean, she's shredded, so it's kind of hard to lose more weight. It would be a drastic weight cut. But if she can try to do it one time, even though she's not going to fight at her best, I think she still would be good enough to be anybody in that division. And then how would you rank the top six welterweights from best to worst? Mine is Usman, Hamza, Burns, Covington, Luke, Edwards. Well, that changed. I would say Usman, Covington, Hamza, Burns, Edwards, and then Bilal. And then we head to the public questions. We start with Simply Pump with the most like comment. Given how Hamza did against Burns, how does he do against Leon Colby or Usman? 
I actually think that Burns' fight was a good fight for him as Hamza didn't feel invincible in there, and that's going to motivate a guy like him to get even better. Second question is, how do you think Shafkat does against Burns? I think Shafkat would match up better on the feet than Hamza did, due to the amazing distance management that he has and his sniper-like shots. Anyways, thanks for always making entertaining videos. Interesting questions here. Thank you so much for the question, man. How does Hamza do against Leon, Colby, and Usman? I talk about the Colby fight. It's close, but I do think Colby would win it. I think he shuts down Leon Edwards with his wrestling. He doesn't have to go at that kind of fast pace because Leon doesn't fight that way. So I think Hamza's cardio would definitely hold up. But the leg kicks early would be a bit damaging against him. And those jabs and straights are going to be tough for Hamza to deal with. But he will potentially try to shoot under them. I think Usman potentially finishes Hamza on the feet. There's only so many right hands you could take from Usman. He could potentially show to be one of the most durable fighters Usman's ever fought before. But with Hamza's almost absence of head movement combined with Usman's jabs and right straights, it's just a recipe for disaster. Because at least Colby has head movement. At least he can duck and dip his head all over the place and Usman misses his punches. Hamza doesn't have that. And I see him not taking Usman to the ground that easily. And if he tries, he's going to gas himself out even more. Hamza also can't fight long. That's what he did against Burns to have some kind of success. When things got a little bit too chaotic, he was getting hurt. Well, Usman has a longer reach. So how is that going to play out? And Usman's a more precise puncher than Burns is. That's a tough one for Hamza, man. That really is. That's the worst, hardest fight for him in the entire division. And yes, I do agree. The Burns fight was a very good experience for Hamza. It's a kind of fight that's going to make him learn and get better. Especially the fact that he won it. And the fact that he had this experience before fighting Usman or any kind of champion. It's so much better for him. Because he can actually get prepared for the champion more efficiently than ever before. Now, how does Shavkat do against Burns? Yes, now, Shavkat's offensive weapons and his ability to manage distance against Burns' overhands is going to be way more successful than Hamzat's. For sure, 100%. He's more precise than Hamzat is. He's a lot more calm and way better at targeting openings. Pretty much everything he does has a purpose to it. When it comes to his footwork, when it comes to his shot placements, everything he does is calculated. The one issue that I can potentially see is Burns just catching up with an overhand at one given moment. It could potentially happen, but with the fact that Shafka has good power, sniper-like precision, and he shows high fight IQ, it's a tough one to see Burns winning this one. When Burns throws his punches, sometimes he's able to cross distances, but it does get extremely obvious. He's fast, but Shafka is as well. And how much taller and longer Shafka is than Burns, it's going to cause Burns to try to blitz in from a long range, and I can see Shafka just moving away, sliding away from it, and starting to pick out those openings, eventually countering them with hooks and uppercuts and such, keeping Burns up against the fence from his pressure, landing body kicks, landing head kicks, front kicks to the face, jabs to the face, being very long. And remember, that's what Hamza was doing against Burns when he was winning, being long using his jab. Shafka will do that right from the beginning. That's the difference there. So there's many ways Shafka can win this. They're going to Navakash Gil. Since he has himself hinted to move up in the future, how does Volkanovski do against the top 5 lightweights in the world? So, against Michael Chandler, the number 5 contender. I'm going to be honest here, I think Volkanovski might be too small against Chandler's firepower, his explosiveness. I think because of his strength, he'll be able to take Volkanovski to the ground. And if Volkanovski ever engages him, the power is always going to be there for Chandler to turn the tides. He's also very fast for a lightweight. I think it's just too physical. I think Chandler's just too big. I mean, we're talking about one of the biggest guys in that weight class when it comes to the muscle, when it comes to just how wide and powerful he is. Now, Benil Dariush, this one would be tough considering the wrestling and the size of Dariush, but when it comes to the feet, Volkanovski tears him apart. 
His speed and technique is going to be a main factor in this one. The leg is going to be super damaging. I see Volkanovski winning this one. Islam Makhachev absolutely dominates Volkanovski. I believe Justin Gaethje might be too big. Volkanovski has not taken him to the ground. But I will say that Volk will do very well early in the fight. Before Gaethje starts to really feel out and get comfortable with the speed. Because these days, man, Gaethje's getting much better as a counterpuncher. Way better. His check left hook and his uppercuts are on point these days. He's going to be able to also keep Volkanovski away with a jab. And even though I see Volk winning most of the exchanges, I think Gaethje's leg kick is going to be a big difference in the fight. Given how wide Volkanovski's stance is, I think that leg is always going to be there for the taking. And at some moment, because of the slowness to Volkanovski's footwork, I think Gaethje's going to be able to counter him with an uppercut and put him down. I think Dustin Poirier TKOs him against the fence. I just see that happening. Dustin Poirier is too big for him, in my opinion. And then as for Charles Oliveira, this one is actually not as hard for Volk compared to some of these other guys. Considering that, of course, Oliveira does not move his head. When you take the speed of Volk's overhands, Oliveira is definitely going to be hurt in the fight. But I think because of Oliveira's size, his newfound wrestling skills, and the fact that he is really good at getting those double underhooks and body locking you into a slam or a trip, I think by like the second round, Oliver is going to get Volk to the ground and submit him. People have to remember, yeah, Volkanovski was big one time, but these days he's not big. He's wide for the featherweight division, but he's super short. And if he jumps up to lightweight, pretty much everybody's bigger than him. Chandler looks like Volkanovski had a growth spurt. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just so different. Then what did Gabriel Roman? Hey, Weasel, if Cejudo returns to flyweight, bantamweight, or featherweight, how does he do against the top five of each division? Keep up the great content. Okay, so the flyweight division, I'm going to go through them really quickly. Beats Perez, beats Pantoja, beats Eskarov. Kai Karofrance would be a competitive fight, but I do think he'll win through his wrestling. He definitely beats Brendan Moreno, and then I think he beats Figgy, but that's a dangerous fight. I think he would be able to use his wrestling to shut down a lot of it whenever he gets hurt. He might be able to just scramble his way, get Figgy to the ground and control it, ultimately tiring Figueroa out in the fight. Bantamweight now. Definitely beats Rafont. I think he beats Sanhagen, but very competitive fight. I think Sanhagen will have a hard time with the pressure and the wrestling threat that's always going to be there. But there's going to be a lot of scary moments for Henry Cejudo, you know, potentially eating knees and jabs to the face and uppercuts and stuff. Cejudo beats Jose Aldo, beats Tijan Dillashaw again. Now regarding Piotr Jan. If Piotrjan keeps giving up these early rounds like this, I can see Cejudo beating him. Jan cannot fight that way, man. He needs to pick it up in those early rounds better now because he's not that kind of finisher. He's not an Anderson Silva, for an example, that would give up the first round, but also having the ability to knock you out in any other round. Piotrjan is not a finisher to that extent, so what he's ultimately doing is he's giving up like the first two rounds in order to pick you apart for the next three to win on the scorecards. And against someone like Cejudo who can adapt in a fight so quickly and change things up, it's going to require Piotrjan to continuously download different kind of data. And already the wrestling threat is always going to be there. We've seen Sterling take Piotrjan to the ground, which is not a good thing to see. And Cejudo is 10 times the wrestler that Sterling is. He has 10 times better takedowns than Sterling does. And with the fact that he's very fast with his hands, extremely quick with his footwork, his ability to cross distances is much faster than Sterling's. He has great leg kicks that Jan's going to have a problem with. So in fact, I would have to slightly lean to Henry Cejudo's side. And then I definitely see Cejudo being Sterling. Sterling's not taking him to the ground. And on the feet, yeah, the reach is there. It's not something that Cejudo hasn't fought before. Now the featherweight division. I think he beats Korean Zombie today. Korean Zombie's a little too old, a lot of damage, a lot of wear and tear. I think Cejudo's power with his speed, just using his hands, is going to be more than enough to beat Korean Zombie. Calvin Cater is too big. He's just way too big. That guy's massive. He's going to show the good takedown defense because of his size, and Cejudo is not boxing with him. Like is going to be damaging, but nothing else. 
Yair, too big in my opinion. Now he could be inefficient with some of his stuff and he could potentially get taken to the ground, but his wrestling is much better than ever before. So I'm gonna have to go with Yair. I think he's too big. Brian Ortega. I go back and forth in this one because Ortega is not that precise sometimes. He gets hit too easily. So I could actually see Cejudo tagging him, catching him here and there. Brian Ortega is much bigger. That's why I might have to lean to his side because even though Cejudo is gonna get the better of most of the exchanges, one shot from Ortega is just different. Right? It's a different level of power than Sudo's ever felt before. But then again, Sudo took a lot of shots from Marlon Marais, who's also huge, can easily find the featherweight division. Against Ortega, I'm going to lean to Sudo actually. I'm going to lean to Sudo. Holloway beats Sudo. And then Volkanovski. I'm going to go with Volk. He's going to show some good takedown defense. He's a much better striker. His jab is going to be on point. His leg kick's going to be on point. But it would be competitive. And then went to the fattest goat. A few questions. What do you think about Eljo versus Dillashaw? Who do you think wins? And then what does Volk have to do to surpass Jose as the greatest featherweight of all time? Eljo versus Dillashaw. Automatically, I give Dillashaw the advantage. It's going to be hard for Eljo to take him to the ground. Dillashaw is an insane scrambler. It might be difficult for Eljo to get Dillashaw's back. Dillashaw's faster. He's more powerful. He has far better footwork. He's so much more complex. Eljo doesn't really have that much power. When it comes to the striking, Dillashaw is far ahead of Aljamain Sterling. Combined with his takedown defense and combined with the fact that he starts quick and he ends quick, he has five-round cardio and that's totally because of his natural training. I'm gonna have to go with TJ Dillashaw. Now, people have to understand about Jose Aldo and his greatness. The guy has done an insane thing. And do you know what's pretty funny about this question? I was talking with my cousin about this. This exact same thing. What would it take for Volkanovski to be greater than Jose Aldo? Because here is Jose Aldo's resume. 10-year win streak, which comprises of 18 total wins. 11 title wins between the WEC and the UFC. 9 title defenses, which is the third most in MMA history. And beat the likes of Cub Swanson, Mike Brown in his prime, Uriah Faber in his prime, Chad Mendes twice, the second one in his prime, Frankie Edgar twice in his prime, Korean Zombie, Ricardo Lamas in his prime, he beat Jeremy Stevens and Nanato Moicano, he did lose though four times in the featherweight division, the bad knockout against Conor McGregor, Max Holloway twice, and then Volkanovski, which was a bit of a closer fight. Now here's Volkanovski, nine-year win streak, which is very similar to Jose Aldo, but he does have more wins, 21 win streak compared to 18 of Jose Aldo's. He has four title wins, Jose Aldo has 11. Three title defenses, Jose Aldo has nine. And then you look at the competition, Volkanovski beat Darren Elkins, Chad Mendez, Jose Aldo, Max Holloway twice, Brian Ortega, and then the Korean Zombie. That's a strong list of high-tiered fighters. But Aldo's is a little bit higher considering his generation, right? When he fought Frankie Edgar, Frankie Edgar was the man, like one of the greatest fighters on the planet. When he beat Chad Mendez, people thought that Chad Mendez was like the next big thing. Korean Zombie was amazing back then. Ricardo Lamas was a threat. Uriah Faber was on top of the world. So was Mike Brown. I will say though that Volkanovski's wins over Holloway and potentially Jose Aldo, considering the fact that, you know, it wasn't prime Jose Aldo. Definitely his wins over Max Holloway are the best wins out of both of the fighters' careers, right? Being Holloway in his prime twice, that's something, man. So what I will say is, even though he doesn't have the title reign and the defense record and all that stuff, the accomplishments, if Volkanovski gets two more top-tiered wins, he is in the argument of being greater than Jose Aldo. So if he goes out there and beats Yair Rodriguez and Max Holloway a third time, he's in the argument. I know some people are going to say, yeah, but he beat the same guy three times. And he may just have a good style against that. There, Okay, there's an argument there. But at least now Volkanovski will be in the discussion somewhat. 
okay, to shut down any kind of debate, just to be fair, if he can get three or four more big wins, Yair Rodriguez, let's say he beats Holloway again, he beats Kelvin Cater, and then he beats, I don't know, Arnold Allen or something, then you probably have to say Volkanovski is the greatest featherweight of all time. And then with Alberto Martinez, thoughts on Herb Dean being praised by the MMA community for stopping the fight between Volk and TKZ. I thought it was an excellent stoppage, setting as how his corner, the doctor, or the fighter himself wouldn't call it for him. Great job by Herb Dean, man. He's been getting a lot of criticism as of late. He's been making some horrible calls for like the last couple years, but this was a good one on Herb Dean for sure. Korean Zombie was getting battered out there. He was showing his toughness, man. He was a warrior. But the referee this time saved the warrior from taking further punishment. Mari Yamasaki has to learn a thing or two on this one. That's a call I believe a lot of referees would not have made. So definitely a beyond excellent call from Herb Dean. Man, I just wish the corner knew something. Because they saw a Korean Zombie between the third and the fourth rounds. They had to have known, man, this is not going our way. Korean Zombie's older now. He's taking a horrendous beating out here. And man, he's successful outside the cage. This guy's a millionaire. He has businesses. He's a celebrity outside the cage. Doing amazing things out here. He doesn't need this. He doesn't need this kind of punishment. He's already cemented himself as a legend of the featherweight division. I wish the corner would have done this instead of the referee. But shout out to Herb Dean, man. And then with the Pacho Max. GDR versus Shevchenko. I'm going to have to go with Shevchenko considering GDR does not have takedown defense. But when it comes to the striking, I think GDR would win. Cyborg versus Shevchenko. I'm going to go with Shevchenko on that one. I think she's just way too technical, way too fast. Cyborg can get pretty sloppy sometimes. I think Shevchenko should be able to win a decision on that one. Kayla Harrison versus Shevchenko. Isn't Kayla Harrison a lightweight? Yeah, I'm going to have to go with Harrison on this one. I think she's too big. I don't think Shevchenko is going to stop her takedowns. Then if you took every current champion and had to move up a weight class to challenge the champ above them, what percentage would you give them to actually win and become a double champ? I hope that made sense. Yeah, so every single champ, what is their chances of being a double champion moving up though? So for Glover, like a 10% chance, he is not beating Francis Ngannou. No way. That is not happening. Adesanya's chances of beating Glover, I would say is like 30%. Usman being Adesanya, I would say is like 50 Oliveira being Usman, I would say 20%. Volkanovski beating Charles Oliveira, I would say is like 40 to 45. Aljamain to beat Volkanovski, I would say that one's like a 35% chance. Figueroa to beat Aljamain Sterling, I would say that one's like a 40%. Shevchenko to beat Juliana Pena, I would say is like an 80%. And then Rolls Namajunas to beat Shevchenko, I would say is like a 20%. And then we get a big candid one. What can the minor promotions such as Bellator do to increase their popularity? I think holding major shows when the UFC takes off 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's would be a great idea for them. P.S. I understand some smaller promotions such as One and Cage Warriors do have great regional popularity, but America seems to be the biggest and most lucrative MMA market. I don't know if there's like anything specific they can do unless they can get a fighter that has that it factor. He's a special fighter that people want to see. That's what it was for the UFC. When they had Chuck Liddell, when they had Tito Ortiz, Randy Couture, when they had these guys in the sport that everybody loved to watch. That's why they were watching it. And that's why Pride became big. Because Pride had guys like Fedor and Vanderlei and Rampage Jackson. Sakuraba was doing his thing out there. You know, Shogun Hua was out there. It was hardcore as well, right, with the stomps and the knees on the ground and stuff like that. And even though they're kind of strange, they did put on those circus fights. Some of Fedor's most famous wins are against like Hungman Choi and that sumo wrestler. 
A lot of people can't understand skill too much, but they do understand size when they see it. So when they see someone like Fedor, a small heavyweight, go and beat guys that are like twice as big as him, it makes people interested in Fedor. This guy's a machine, and that's why he became so big in the MMA space. It depends what kind of fighters you have, or if you can change the rules a little bit to make them more curious for the fans to watch. So for an example, if Bellator start implementing soccer kicks and knees to grounded opponents, maybe more people would actually tune in. And if it's not going to be something like that, they got to hope to get that one fighter. They got to hope to get that Conor McGregor in their organization because then things will go crazy for them. But they would have to put all of their promotional money into that guy. They really have to step hard into that. I mean, they had Michael Page and Michael Page was making some rounds. People were recognizing this guy, but then seeing him getting flatlined by Douglas Lima, that momentum hit a brick wall. That's really what it comes down to, in my opinion. And yeah, one championship is huge. It's absolutely huge. Like, people say Bellator is the second biggest. I think one championship is actually the second biggest when you talk about global viewership, global ratings. I don't know too much about Cage Warriors. I know they're big over there in Europe, around uh, Ireland and the UK region. But I do absolutely know that one championship is enormous. Then with the Farmer with Shotgun. I was watching a ton of Lyoto Machida's fights the other day, and I realized that his style was super advanced for his era. His feints, his lateral movement, and angler counterpunching are things that fighters only just now are starting to approximate. Who are some of the older MMA fighters that had styles that were well ahead of their times? After Conor came in, a lot of people start to use that wide, long-stance karate style, but I guess Lyoto Machida was the first one to really implement that, but Conor brought in the boxing style with the karate. And a lot of people start to use that as well. I would also have to say that Chuck Liddell is one of the first fighters to actually use that kind of movement and also be known as a puncher. Because a lot of guys those days were very flat-footed. The big powerful strikers like to just walk in front of you. But Chuck Liddell was very, very different. He was really good with his angles as well as being a one-punch knockout artist. That was definitely ahead of his time. He just didn't really have much defense. Something that we still don't see too much today that I believe we will in the future is dirty boxing. So Randy Couture. Randy Couture brought in the dirty boxing game that almost nobody else ever used again. He was so good in the clinch, even against bigger fighters. His ability to swap grips, punch with both hands inside of the clinch, putting up combinations in there. He was a handful when he was dirty boxing. That is something I want to see evolve in the game. Uh, Mark Holman with his ground and pound was definitely ahead of the game. A lot of stuff that Benson Henderson brought to MMA was way ahead of his time. You know, for an example, some of the calf kicks, some of the side kicks to the knee and stuff, low feints to overhands and stuff. He did a lot of things in the sport that a lot of people start to use later. Maybe he wasn't the first one to do it, but he did popularize a lot of techniques. And how can you go further than Anderson Silva? With the front kicks... The low side kicks, the oblique kicks. I mean, he's one of the first ones to ever throw those kind of strikes in MMA. People think it was John Jones. Anderson was throwing this stuff before Jones was. You have Habib with his cage wrestling completely changed the game. For a long time, people were using the cage in order to wall walk, stand up from the bottom. But then Habib showed everybody you could use the cage actually against them, trapping them there in order to land your ground upon shots. Of course, there's Edson Barboza with the spinning attacks, the side kicks and stuff. He revolutionized MMA with spinning attacks. After he landed that one on Terry Adam, everybody started to use them to the point where now like 50% of the fighters are throwing them. When before Edson, no one was throwing them. I did with the King Carte. What do you think Hamza's chances are against Adesanya? After his performance against Gilbert Burns, how do you think the fight between him and Colby will play out since it's supposed to happen next? So, do I think Hamza still has a good chance of beating Adesanya? He gets torn apart on the feet, but I could potentially see him taking down Adesanya still. Right, Adesanya is a tall and long guy. I mean, he's not that much taller than Hamza, actually. They're very close in height. But the thing is, Adesanya is not that big. Hamza and Adesanya weigh about the same. As crazy as that sounds. 
Hamza walks around like 195 pounds. Adesanya walks around like 200 pounds. So I definitely give a huge chance to Hamza winning that one. I would actually probably favor him to win slightly, maybe like a 55% chance. And that is the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure to give it a like, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel, hit the bell, and I'll see you guys in the prediction video.